Well, we have been in this series of uh, stepping into your yes and talking about the connection between faith and yes, defining faith. And from Hebrews 11, leaning on this concept that's in that text of the connection between today and tomorrow, there's a lot of not yet. It's coming, but not yet in Hebrews 11. And we want to build on that with this idea. You saw it in the stories of the people that we gave uh, gifts to and gave grief to in some cases, uh, responding to a dare by your favorite pastor wearing a striped shirt today. <clears throat> the idea that there's something going on now, but something coming in the future, that whatever's going on now doesn't define the future. It just describes the present, but it doesn't define the future or looking forward. There are implications for the things that we experience now, the decisions we make now. There are implications for every historical event in our life. And Easter's no different. There are implications for Easter. Do you remember uh, when you were a kid, arguments with other kids? We had phrases we used. They were like little weapons, and they were, they were powerful, and they got you out of trouble when you said them. Uh, at, on White Drive, 983 White Drive, Santa Clara, California, is where we used, we employed our phrases as little kids in word wars. And on the campuses of Millican Elementary School, in the hood of Santa Clara, where I grew up. And we had comebacks for everything. You had some of the same comebacks. These are universal rules. No matter where you went, where you moved, you could use the same thing, the same words, the same comebacks, and they would work. People knew. For instance, we had comebacks for when somebody called us a dame. Remember some of the comebacks? Yeah. They used to call me Curly Q. I'd come walk, Curly Q, Curly Q. And the comeback we used was, ready for this? I know you are, but what am I? Remember, I know you are, but what am I? Any other I know you are, but what am I users out there? Anybody use it this morning with your spouse? <laughs> I know you are, but what am I? And then there was a comeback for that little Raz. Takes one to no one. Remember that one? Takes one to no one. And we even had comebacks for the comebacks. And the comeback for that comeback of takes one to no one? Any guesses? Then you must know them all. Remember that one? Did you not use that one? Was that Santa Clara specific? We even had a comeback for reasonable but threatening questions as kids. Some would say, so what? Which challenges you to justify what you just said. So what? What's the relevance of that? And our answer was, that's what. Remember? Great logic we had as kids. So what? That's what. Oh, I guess I have no comeback for that's what, you know. Because that's a relevant question, the so what, and then the that's what. Really, without realizing it, we were saying, how real is that? How does that touch my life? What's the relevance of that? And your answer would be, that's what. You had answers, and we still do that as adults. We still ask the question, and as Christians, we're invited to ask that question constantly, to God even. So what? What's the deal with this? How is this relevant? How does this touch me? What's the relevance of Easter? So what? And God has, and we have, these that's what answers in response. And it's that last little childhood neighborhood jab I want to focus on this morning on Easter. The so what's of Easter. Not to disrespect Easter, but to ask a question God invites us to ask because he invites us to keep using 
our minds, even when it's delicate and not all that comfortable. He rose from the dead. So what? How is that relevant? The event we celebrate today is no different than some of those childhood questions. But the words are different, and our age is different, and we think differently about that. We have a more refined so what, and we have pretty high demands on what we hear in response to that. The grave is empty. Jesus is alive again. He was verified dead, and now he's alive again. They, rolled, they went to see him, and the stone was rolled away. So what? What are some of the things that Easter means? Here's one of them. Easter means, resurrection means, empty grave has implications. And one of them is this. It means that stuckness is a lie. Stuckness, the idea that what we are today, where we are today, the way we're dealing with today, and the things that are coming at us today, we're stuck there forever. It's never really going to be different. We have this spiritual and emotional, intellectual class system that believes this lie, that whatever it is you're born into or step into, choose to step into, is what you're stuck in for the rest of your life. And Easter means stuckness is a lie. The fact that Jesus is alive today, not as a concept, not as a fable, but literally in some form, the form of the Holy Spirit, alive today, walking with us, means that we are free. We are not stuck. Why are we not stuck? Newsflash. Because he ain't stuck. We're only as stuck as Jesus is. And if you could convince yourself that he's stuck, that he's wounded, that he has no movement to move beyond or break any chains, then you can convince yourself that you're stuck. But we're only as stuck as Jesus is. And he ain't stuck. Never has been stuck. Never will be stuck. In fact, according to the Easter narrative, a brief portion of which you heard read this morning, Jesus sort of has, seems he has his doctrine in unstuckness. He knows about getting people unstuck. In fact, according to a text in Luke, when Jesus came back to his hometown and sat down to teach, they handed him the scroll and he read an Old Testament prophecy and he seemed to say, I'm all about helping people no longer be stuck. It's on page 948 in the Bibles that are underneath the seats in front of you if you'd care to read along, but I'll read it for you. From Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 18. Here's what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That's unstuck language. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners. That's unstuck language. And recovery of sight for the blind. Let me know when you've heard enough. That's unstuck language language. To release the oppressed. What is that? Unstuck language. And proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's grace and mercy language that gets us unstuck. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, because now he would expound upon that text that he read, blew their minds by saying, today, this scripture that I read is, is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he's saying, what I just read, that was talking about me. That's my purpose in life. That's why 
I came. Stuckness is a lie. It only holds you by the ankle as long as you believe it. Jesus was about unstuckness. And on that morning of Easter Sunday, the grave was found to be empty. And that empty grave has implications, far-reaching implications, even for us today. A so what with a huge stack of that's what's. That's what. That includes the fact that you're not stuck in your addiction. It's not going to be like that forever. Jesus wants to break those chains. You're not stuck in a broken relationship that can't be healed and can't be whole. Jesus wants to do something different about that. Not stuck in poverty that keeps you and your children down for generations and generations and generations. He wants to do something about that through his church and through his presence and through the insight he brings and through the faith he hears and sees from you. Jesus, that the ultimate freedom writer, has claimed that his whole purpose for coming in the first place was to identify the shackles that hold us down and break them. Stuckness is a lie that too many of us have believed. And then he validated those claims by this little thing called the resurrection. He refused to stay stuck in the cave. Easter means that stuckness is alive because Jesus is alive and walking with us today. You're only stuck if he is stuck. And to put it in proper Webster English, he ain't stinking stuck. <laughs> so neither are we. I mean, after all, what good would a redeemer be to us if he were the kind of God that freed himself from his grave and then left us in ours? That's a nice little applause. Implications, so what? Stuckness is a lot. When, in, my, in my hood in Oakland where we grew up, we just had one size fits all. It's, it was always just your mama. That's all we had. <laughs> no implications about the risen Christ. Stuckness is a lie. I want to add one to it, and this is it. You got game. Here's an implication of Jesus being alive. You got game. And that's a silly way of simply saying this, that you have something significant to contribute. That's what that means. Every one of us needs to know and wants to hear somewhere in our life, in some area of our life, if not many areas, that we got game. We have something to bring to the table. We have something to contribute. We have something that can be a game changer with this world and with our lives, that we, we bring something. And I'm not just talking about the big spiritual, uh, you know, eternal kinds of things. I'm I'm talking about just the everyday stuff. We want to know that we contribute. It's in our hearts to know that. I've told this story before that um, I was at a um, Babe Ruth baseball game when my son was playing baseball in, in, uh, in Novato years ago. And there was an ump that was working the game. And he was working the game like the best coach that I'd ever seen, but he was umping. 
So during the game, while the game was going on, he was interacting with players. He would step, you know, across the plate after there was a double play ball, and he'd say, way to turn that, good hands, way to keep your eye on the runner, on, on the ball and not on the runner. And he would, you know, he would just interact with players that way the entire game. It was amazing to watch. And my son was pitching late in this game when he's not a pitcher, but the coach was just trying it. And, and he, he knew that, you know, that my son wasn't a pitcher. And so he was stepping across the plate and yelling to my son at the mound saying, hey, well done, keep your head low, you know, and he was talking to my son this whole time. And in fact, at one point, he turned around knowing that my kid was not a, a pitcher, but was actually showing some promise. He turned around, looked in the stands, and he's like, whose son is this? And I'm, I'm like, and he goes, come here, in the middle of the game, stops the game. And I come down off the bleachers and I go right to the fence and he's like, listen, he can actually be a pretty good pitcher. I think if you work with him to do this and to do that and he's got some natural talent and he's like talking to me and all the parents are being over behind him and he's like, okay, like, you know, go back up. All right, so I go. So, I mean, every play he had something to say. Kid ground out into, uh, you know, turn, turned over on the ball and ground into third. He's like, okay, that was better than last time. Stay ahead of it. You know, and he's talking to kids. Well, by the end, I just thought, this guy's the most amazing. I've never seen, all well, the kids were lighthearted. They were, they were uh, you know, full. They were walking with their heads held high as opposed to how a lot of the tone that a lot of coaches give. Hello, right? Have you seen that? This is an umpire. And so after the game, I go over to him and I just go, listen, I I've worked with students for a lot of years. Back, you know, I said I was a youth pastor for a long time, and I said I've never seen anybody lift them and encourage them and give them hope and speak into them. Like you, I mean, you're amazing at this. And I just sort of unloaded all of my like, wow, 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 this a giant overflowing compliment. And I thought he'd be doing that, you know, I decide, well, that's nothing. I, well, he looks right in my eyes and he goes, yep, that's what I do. And I'm like, I got to go find out what I do. Like, <laughs> it is in all of us to have game. It is in every one of us to know that we bring something to the table, that we matter, that we are substantial. Becoming unstuck is just the beginning. It's be being healed is just the beginning. Knowing that God can bring us out of something that we're stuck in is the beginning. From there, then, we want to know that we contribute, that we have significant purpose and impact on the world. Jesus said to his followers, after living a life of miraculous involvement on earth, Jesus said to them these words in John chapter 14, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. They'll do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater works than these because I'm going to go to the Father. And in just a little short one-third of a sermon, let me just tell you what this means. He's saying, if I go up to the Father, then the Spirit of God can then come and indwell you. And if the Spirit of God comes and indwells you, then you will be capable of God-like stuff. You're going to do the works I do. You're going to do even greater works than me. And what he really meant by that is that my spirit's going to be in all of his believers all over the world. And they're going to do God stuff, God-sized stuff, God-like stuff. They're going to be game changers. They're going to have game because the spirit of God lives in them. People need to know they're loved. They need to know they're, uh, they can be unstuck. But they also need to know that they can be fruitful. Fruitful. Significant. We long to do something of meaning and value that grows out of our capacity, that grows out of who we are by God's Spirit within us. 
That makes our hearts beat, doesn't it? This is why we've resonated so much in an opposite funny way with Dilbert, because Dilbert is like that, that uh, cynical choice of the icon of American sort of corporate life, right? I ran across this, this Dilbert uh, cartoon in preparation for this. This is a guy saying, I'm here for an interview. Uh, I have to go to a conference room named, and he looks at it, where hope goes to die. <laughs> she goes, oh, it's the first one past the rectangle of futility. Maybe this, we think that Dilbert's so funny because it taps into these instinctive fears that anonymity and boredom and futility is going to be our lot. And then I'm going to die. But just the opposite has happened because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead and walks with us, his spirit in us gives us game calls us to significance and purpose. And we're not just talking about the biggest things. It's about every area of our lives. We've got game when it comes to working out marriage. Ruth said she got married 50-something years ago, and she's like, and we intended to stay with it, you know? She worked it out. We've got game when it comes to being parents. We've got game when it comes to to, uh, facing our weaknesses and our errors. We've got game when it comes to how we work with our our friends and our neighborhoods, what our careers are like, what our investments are going to be about. We've got game in every area of our lives, and not just our lives, in the way that we touch those things. I mean, you want to know where your life and your game is? It's where you get up in the morning, and it's the stuff that you face all day long. It's the people on the bus. It's the people at Starbucks. It's the people in next cubicle. It's the people that you're supervising. It's the people that you're, you're... that you're avoiding their telephone calls when they call, that it's all those people. We have impact. We have God-sized impact on our world. And just beyond that, it's even to the world at large. We in today's world get to be invested all over the world in God-sized and God-like stuff. We got game. Ruth Fox has got game. I asked Ruth to come up here to share today. Was she not just delightful to have Ruth up here? Because she said... And we talked on the phone. She said these words to me. I said, Ruth, it doesn't sound to me like you're done. And she goes, oh, I'm not done. I'm not done. I'm working on my marriage, loving people so that they might come to know that they come into a knowledge of the love and the grace of Jesus where I live. Because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus has been resurrected and walks with us Ruth has the filling of the Holy Spirit for God-sized calling and impact. Ruth's got game. And by the grace of God, so do we. Well, this morning as we're looking at the implications of Easter, we see that Easter means that stuckness is a lie. We see that Easter means that now we have game. And finally, we're going to look at this morning that Easter means that you are not alone. Because if Jesus is alive, you now have full access to God and you've been invited to be adopted into the family of God. And when I was in high school, I was actually adopted into a family because I was tired of my own parents. You know, they were uncool and uh, they were on my back all the time. And uh, they cared about my grades and my chores. And, uh, and my friend Craig had these parents who were not like that at all. They were so cool and they were so generous. And I found myself going to his house every day at lunchtime my sophomore year. I would raid their fridge. I'd play video games, watch TV. And every day at lunch turned into many afternoons, turned into many weekends. He was one of my best friends. And uh, I was there so much that they started referring to me as their second son. 
as their adopted son. I was like, yeah, and you're like my adopted parents. This is so great. You're the, the parents I never had, the ones that I wanted, who would feed me and who would love me and who didn't care about my grades or didn't ask me about my homework. I love that. And um, I was their adopted son, and it was so great. Well, um, the, uh, the family was planning a trip to Hawaii that summer, a family trip to Hawaii, and I've never been to Hawaii. This is so great. The family's going to Hawaii. And uh, as the planning is going on and going on, all of a sudden I realized, oh, the real family. <laughs> Not the adopted kid family, the real family. Right? Because the truth was, I wasn't an adopted son. I was just simply a guest, an honored guest. And they oozed hospitality all over me, and I loved it. But I was simply a guest. And I think a lot of times we use language with each other. We talk about family. We talk about being best friends. We talk about being in deep relationship. But then life happens or things happen. And we realize that the way that we've been investing in someone else isn't returned. And due to our choices or someone else's choices, we can often feel isolated and alone. And this passage of Scripture is just, um, what we're talking about at Easter is this reminder that you are simply not alone. The overwhelming picture of Scripture is that God designed us to be in intimate relationship with God and intimate relationship with each other. In the very beginning, God created humanity. And the picture of marriage is two people coming together, sharing all of who they are, every part of who they are, so that they become one flesh, the most intimate of relationships. Later on, it goes on to talk about Abraham's family. And Abraham had a family and a clan and a tribe and a, to a people. And if you were part of the tribe of Abraham, you were a people. You had a place to belong. In the New Testament, we have this picture of being the body of Christ. We all have different parts. We all have different things we're good at, but we all belong to each other. When one part hurts, the other part mourns alongside it. When one part celebrates, we celebrate with them. And the final picture we have is the most intimate, that we are a family, that we are the family of God. And we're not like this giant family, like when you go to a family reunion. It's actually a really intimate family. It's an intimate family where God is our heavenly father, and all of us are sisters and brothers, not distant cousins, but sisters and cousins. Now, because of Easter, you not only have a people, but that you are actually invited into a family. We love that you're a guest. I love being a guest. We have all sorts of food. All the food is available to you as a guest. But at some point, you have to go home and do your own life. But the invitation into the family of God is that to no longer be a guest, but be invited into an intimate family. Now, the deal is the family is a byproduct of being a child of God. The way that we are a family is because we're first adopted into God's family. In Luke chapter 15, there's this incredible and beautiful story. It's, it's called the, the, um, the parable of the prodigal son. And the, and the prodigal story goes like this. There's a father. He's a wealthy landowner, and he has two sons, and they're doing really well. And these two sons, they had to do chores, and they had responsibilities, and they had things that they needed to do as part of the part of being part of the family. But then they also had all the blessings of being a part of a wealthy landowner family. Well, one day the youngest son's had enough. He's tired of the chores. He's tired of his dad bossing around. He's ready to get out on his own, sort of, because he asks all of his money from his dad. So he takes all of the money, his inheritance from his dad, and he goes out into a distant land and just squanders it, lives it up, cashes out half of his dad's inheritance on the good life. But sure enough, his, his money runs out, and when his money runs out, his friendships run out, and he finds himself at the end of his rope. And at the end of the rope, alone and isolated and destitute, he comes to his senses. He has this epiphany and says, oh my goodness, even the servants in my father's house are doing better than me. And he begins to question, what would it be like if I was to go back there? And some of us have grown up in the church and have been around the church for a long time. 
and then just kind of wandered away, maybe intentionally or just subtly, and found ourselves heading off to the distant land to try out what life outside of the Father's household might be like. But for some people, after a long time of doing that, you've realized there is no life there. There is no family there. There is no connection there. And maybe this Easter is a gentle reminder that it might be time to come back home. For some people who've never been a part of God's family, and they've just only known life in the distant land, They've only known life separate from God and God's people. They've only known life uh, competing with the selfish and self-absorbed people around them, trying to make a way. And after doing that for only so long, at some point you have to have an epiphany and say, man, is this really all there is? Is this all there is to it? Well, Easter is the power and the mechanism that makes the adoption into God's family possible. Because in the story of the prodigal son, the story ends like this, that the father, he's at the edge of his property. He has a property and he can't go because he has to manage his household, but he's always waiting and longing for his son to come home. And it says when the son comes home, the father sees him from a long way off. The implication is that God is at the edge of his property, peering out into the distance, waiting for any one of his lost kids to just turn around and come back. But what's so incredible about Easter is that Jesus, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, is that Jesus is dispatched by God to actually go to the distant country to find the lost and the alienated and the, the, the poor and the oppressed, those who are disenfranchised. He goes out and finds them and invites them to a new life, invites them to a life back into the kingdom of God. Jesus pays their debt. He, he heals their brokenness. He forgives their sins, and he makes a way back into the family of God. So what does it mean to be adopted into God's family? When you're adopted into God's family, it's not like the Cinderella story, like, okay, you made it, but you're still unclean and dirty and you, we don't really like you, you don't fit in, so you can go and clean and be a servant, which still would be great, I think, but that's not the picture we have in Scripture. When you are adopted into God's family, you are God's very own daughter, God's very own son. You get to sit at the family table. That is the honor that we get. You get to go to Hawaii, but you also are responsible for some chores and doing the things that are about the family business. And so how do we do that? The way that we have, the picture that we have in picture, I mean, the picture we have in scripture is our churchy word called repentance. And repentance is simply this. It just means that you used to be going one way and you're turning to go the other way. That's all it means. And if you want to be adopted in the family of God, it just means quit running away from God. Quit running towards the kingdom that just satisfies you and run towards God. And when you make that pivot, when you humbly recognize that you're not the center of the universe, but God is, and you make that pivot towards God, God is there waiting to embrace us. At the end of the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, verse 20, it's on page 965 in your Bibles. Jesus paints this beautiful picture. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He ran to his daughter, and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And we are so glad if you find yourself here as a guest the household of God is one of the most generous homes, and you can eat from our fridge all day, every day. But for some of you who've been part of the family of God and been running for too long, 
Maybe for some of you who have never been a part of the family of God and only known life in the distant land, we wanted you to know that this morning you are invited to be in the actual family of God, to be a daughter and son of the King Most High. And all it takes is taking your little bit of faith and the power of the resurrection and repenting, turning from one way and moving towards Christ for you to be fully embraced. And that is the good news of Easter. And as we wrap up our morning, I'd like to encourage you to stand up. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite the band up, and uh, we're going to continue our morning in worship. But would you pray with me? Heavenly Father and our gracious God, how incredible that we get to call you the Holy King of the universe, our Heavenly Father. For it is because of Easter that you have made a way for us to be adopted into your family. And there's some people here, God, who have been running from you, either intentionally or unintentionally, for so long. And this morning might be an epiphany where they might say, I'm done running. I'm done being alone. I'm done being isolated. I'm done trying to do everything for me. Maybe this morning is the morning where we repent, where we turn our back on the distant land, and we move towards Jesus. And while we're still a long way off, may our Heavenly Father see us as he's filled with compassion. We can imagine him running to us, saying, my precious daughter, my precious son, as he throws his arm around us and kisses us. And as we humbly confess, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm no longer worthy to be called your daughter. But as we're confessing, we see God step back and he calls his servants quick and bring the best robe, put it on him. Put the best ring on his fingers and sandals on her feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us have a feast and celebrate for this daughter of mine was dead and is alive. My son was lost and is found. Let us celebrate. Amen and amen.